0: your Bibles, please, to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're wrapping up this chapter tonight. One of the commentators that I was looking at this week reminded me that we're still in the upper room. And that began in chapter 13. And that from thir- t- chapter 13 down to verse 17 here in John 15, most of what Jesus says is marked by commands. He commands them, he commands them, he commands them. A new commandment I give unto you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he, But between 1518 to the end of chapter 17, which wraps up his great high priestly prayer, that's marked primarily by condensed instruction. So, most of the commands are passed. And now he's starting to teach them all these things. And it doesn't sound spiritual, but I can't think of any other way to say it. He is dumping a load on these men. And sometime... I'm going to have to sit down and read 13 through the end of 17 and just see roughly how long or or how few minutes, if I can put it like that, he takes to unload all these things on these men. And remember, they're not regenerated. They're still lost. They don't have the Holy Spirit. He's been promised to them, but he's with them in Christ but they, don't, they haven't been indwelt by the Spirit yet. So this is... And if it wasn't for the fact that he's promised that when the Spirit comes, he's, he's going to remind them of everything he said, it would be hopeless that they would remember hardly anything that he says tonight. Last week, we were in verses 18 through 25. And the Lord Jesus was warning his faithful 11. Remember, Judas is gone. That the world will hate them and persecute them. That in that context, the world particularly refers to Judaism and to the Jewish leaders. The Pharisees, the the scribes, the priests. And the world is going to hate them And persecute them. Their own religious leaders are going to hate them and persecute them. Because they hate and persecute Jesus. And they are his. And as we're going to see a little bit later on down in in chapter 16. Their hatred has been directed almost exclusively at the Lord Jesus. I mean they're such small fry that they don't even register on the scale As far as the religious leaders are concerned. No, it's Jesus that they hate at this point. But once he's gone, they can't torment him anymore. They can't persecute him anymore. They can't kill him again. They're going to turn all that hatred to them because they're his. They're like him. They're saying the same thing he said. They're they're loyal to him. And they're going to be hated simply because they belong to Christ. They're going to be hated because they bring good news. It's incredible. 1 John chapter 5, we're told God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's good news. And they're going to hate them for bringing them news. How to be saved. They're not going to hate them because they storm in and kill them and their families in their homes and burn their houses down over the top of them, shouting, Jesus is great. They're not going to hate them because they threaten them with death or slavery or persecution if they don't pray this prayer and ask Jesus in their hearts. That's what the Hindus are accusing our Christian brothers and sisters in India of doing that they're calling it forced conversions how do you force someone to believe they're, they're not going to hate them because they intentionally try to cut them off from their families and their friends and, their, and to see that they have no close relationships with anyone except them Oh, and also, we would appreciate it if you'd sign off all of your property to us, like the cults do. That's not a reason to hate them. No, they hate them because they love them, or that is, the disciples will love them and tell them how to escape God's wrath and how to receive eternal life. They hate us. The world hates us. Not. Exclusively the Jewish leaders and Judaism, but now the world in general. That is that system that has set itself against the Lord Jesus Christ among mankind. Those spiritual forces that work within human beings to cause us, before we come to faith in Christ or are brought to faith in Christ, to hate Christ, to despise Christ. To ignore him. And to treat him as contemptible. Mm. They hate us because we're his. The world hates him. Therefore it hates us. So is that how the story ends? Jesus stands up and says they'll kill me but I will rise again. And when I've risen again, I'll return to my father's house and I'll receive the kingdom that is my reward for dying for men. And uh, you can't come now. And they'll hate you. I mean, is that how the story ends? Oh, by the way, all sorts of people will hate you. Jews, Jewish leaders, all sorts of idol worshipers, all sorts of... Unreligious people. They'll hate you. And they'll hate you and persecute you. Bye. I mean, is that how the story ends? No. Let's see how the story ends tonight. We're in John chapter 15. We begin in verse 26. Jesus says, When the advocate comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. And you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they did not know the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Hmm. When the advocate comes. And here we have that word parakletos. One who is called alongside. The one that we know as the Holy Spirit from chapter 14. Uh, That parakletos can be translated comforter or encourager or helper or even teacher. So when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he is the same kind of helper that I am. He's just like me who's coming to you. But he's not flesh and blood like I am. He is the spirit of truth. In fact, he's my spirit. Back in John chapter 14, verse 18, he says, right after talking about the Holy Spirit, he says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So I will come back to you in the Holy Spirit. And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, not if, but he is definitely coming. I will send him to you from the Father. I will send him to you from the Father. And so here's the first rabbit for the evening. This is another way in which the Lord Jesus Christ gives us a glimpse into the Trinity. Now you remember when we started in chapter 14. We said one of the things that's amazing is that Jesus has only a few hours. A few short hours to say the most important things he can to these 11 faithful men. And what does he spend his time doing? He spends a lot of his time teaching them about the Trinity in those short hours or even minutes that he has. So here we have the Lord Jesus giving us another glimpse into the Trinity. In other words, he says, the Holy Spirit is from the Father. Like, I'm from the Father. And the word from there is not the usual word for from, it's para. And I don't need to tell you what para means. It means alongside. Think about parallel lines. Alongside. So the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends is coming from the Father. That is, he's been alongside the Father. So the Holy Spirit is not the Father, just like Jesus is not the Father... But yet, he has been with the Father. How long? From eternity. From the beginning. Just like Jesus has been with the Father. From the beginning. But he says, he's coming from the Father. But I will send him. Wait a minute. So the Father sending him. And the Lord Jesus is sending him. What does that say about the Lord Jesus' relationship to the Father? Mm-mm. And he says here, he proceeds from the Father. It's a nice theological word, doesn't tell us anything. The Greek word means that he goes out of the Father. So he's alongside the Father, but yet he goes out of the Father. You see why the Trinity is just absolutely incomprehensible? So he's been with the Father, yet he comes out of the Father. What does that say about the Holy Spirit's relation to the Father? Hmm. So you've got three distinct persons. Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father. The Spirit's not Jesus. Each one of them is distinct. Yet there's this unmistakable unity. There's this unmistakable sameness. There's this eternality. Jesus is with the Father, alongside the Father. Yet one with the Father. Not as the JWs say, one in agreement with the Father. We're in agreement with the Father. But he's one in essence with the Father. In chapter 14 verse 9 he said to see me is to see the Father. But yet he's not the Father. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' Spirit. He's from the Father. He's alongside the Father. Yet he's out of the Father. So they're they're all tangled up. If I can put it like that. They're not mixed up. But they're all, it's called intertwined. Intertwined. In one God. So when the helper comes. When the advocate comes. When the comforter comes. He will bear witness about me. He's going to testify about me. And we'll learn more about that next week. In verses 9 through 14. But the main way he'll testify. About the Lord Jesus Christ. Is through his disciples. And we're going to find out in just a minute. That Jesus is talking particularly about these 11 men. But it expands to us. It's not exclusively of these 11 men. But tonight, as he's speaking to them, he's talking particularly to them. He's going to bear witness through his disciples. And notice in verse 27. And you will bear witness also. Hmm. Does, does Jesus mean that the disciples are going to bear witness with the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. That's exactly what he means. He says also, you will bear witness also. In other words, you're going to be doing the same thing the Holy Spirit does. You'll be testifying with him. Hmm. And we were told in chapter 14 and verse 17, he will be in you. So he will be empowering you to bear witness to me. To testify about me. He will be directing you as you testify about me. In the synoptics he says when you're arrested and thrown into prison for my sake. And you're hauled up before kings or before governors. Don't ponder beforehand what you're going to say. Don't worry about that. Don't lose sleep thinking about what should I say. Because it will be the Spirit speaking through you at that time. Mm. And he says, you'll bear witness about me because you have been with me from the beginning. So that's how we know this is particularly directed to them. Because we've not been with Jesus from the beginning. But from the very beginning of his ministry, they were. Mm. The Holy Spirit will testify about the Lord Jesus through His disciples, through their verbal testimony, confirmed by signs and wonders. Hmm. In Matthew chapter ten, verse eight, we see that's exactly what the what the Lord Jesus Christ Himself did. See, here we are. Holy Spirit's doing exactly the same thing Jesus does. He's a helper of the same kind. Jesus was sending out his his 12. In chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10 verse 8, and he tells them, "Heal the sick, raise the dead, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons as validation that the message you're bringing is true." But it's also a prediction about us who have never seen the Lord Jesus. We haven't been with him from the beginning. Yet we believe in him. We bear witness. We testify to him. Who he is. What he's done for us. But yet we do it without performing miraculous signs and wonders. So the question has to be asked. Why not? I'm glad you asked. Because the answer is all about miracles. Now what's a miracle? What's a miraculous sign? A miracle is an extraordinary, supernatural work of God by which he ignores or sets aside his normal, natural laws. A miracle is God intruding into his created order to do something contradictory to or in violation of the natural laws he set into effect. That's why it's a miracle. It's not the something natural. And I'm going to resist the uh, temptation to go along the faith healer line here. But we'll, we'll leave that alone for right now. There are three periods in history when God used miracles. Or when God worked miracles through his slaves. The first period would have been the exodus. You don't see about anything about miracles until the Exodus. And the slave that the Lord used at that time was his faithful servant Moses. His friend Moses. Moses performed all these signs, these miracles before Pharaoh. To validate, he performed all these plagues before Pharaoh. In order to validate that what he was saying to Pharaoh is coming from the mouth of Yahweh. Moses was used by God to perform the miracles of manna and quail and providing water out in the desert. We heard Eric talk, I mean heard Bob talk about that this morning. Water out in the desert as validation to the Israelites that what he was saying to them was coming from the mouth of God. Then you have the period of Elijah and Elisha in the 9th century BC. They performed miracles, raised the dead, did the, uh, the precedent for the Lord Jesus Christ taking loaves and fishes, just a handful, and feeding 15,000 people. Then Elijah took a little cruise of oil and a little handful of meal and fed the widow of Zarephath and her son and himself throughout an entire famine. And God used them to use Elijah and Elisha to perform those miracles at that time to validate that what they were saying to the wicked kings of Israel and to the wicked idolatrous people of Israel about they ought to repent and come back to God. That those miracles validated what they said was from Yahweh. And then the third period: Jesus and the apostles. The miracles that Jesus did validated that everything he was saying is true. The miracles that the apostles did validated what they said about Jesus was true. Otherwise, why believe these outrageous things? This is something brand new. Nobody's heard this before. And so therefore, God gives miracles in all three periods... Because he's giving new revelation about himself. New revelation about his will. New revelation about salvation that he's working toward men. In Exodus, he gives us the new revelation of the law. Israel had never had any laws from God. Israel had never had any specific directions for worship. Israel had never been told the extent of God's holiness before, but in the law God reveals new information about himself in the period of Elijah and Elisha He's calling Israel back to repentance, but he's also extending grace to the Gentiles Naaman the widow of Zarephath and during the period of Jesus and the Apostles this startling unexpected new revelation that Yahweh has come to earth as a human being in Jesus of Nazareth and that he will save all who trust in him all who trust in him who trust you're saved by trusting in him by grace new this is brand new And in the epistles, we have the final word that God speaks to us. All we need. God's revelation of himself to us and his word to us is now complete. There's nothing new to be said. And therefore, there's no need for validating miracles. Now back to our passage chapter 16, verse 1, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. These things, the fact that the world hates you and the world is going to persecute you. He says, I've spoken these things to you so you may be kept from stumbling. When they vent their hatred on you. That you may be kept from stumbling. Remember, what are these 11 men expecting? I mean, even tonight, before when they sat down with the Lord Jesus or reclined with the Lord Jesus... At the Passover meal. What were they expecting? Sometime this week. Jesus is going to go into the temple. He is going to be crowned king of Israel. He is going to be announced as the Messiah. He's going to throw the Romans out. He's going to establish the kingdom of God on earth. It's going to stretch from the river to the sea. Guess where they got that from? Yeah. He is going to restore... The Solomonic majesty and greatness and luxury and richness to Israel. And we're going to be right up there with him. We're going to be sitting on the stage with him. We're going to be sitting in 12 thrones with him, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We're going to be the big shots. And the triumphal entry, just five days prior to this, has validated that in their thinking. And now everything's falling apart. I mean, not only is Jesus not going to be crowned king, he says, he's going away. And we can't go with him. And after he leaves, our own people are going to hate us. And the the Jewish leaders are going to, our religious leaders are going to hate us and persecute us. So in his kindness, Jesus is preparing them for that. If he hadn't prepared them, what would they have thought when he's crucified and he dies? And they have, were we wrong? Were we deceived? Were we deluded? What would they have thought when the first flush of Pentecost comes? And you have five thousand converts in Jerusalem, and then comes persecution. When Stephen is murdered by the Jews' own religious leaders, the temple leaders, the priests, when you have that vicious, bloody door-to-door persecution of Saul. Dragging out all these new Christians. Murdering many of them. Casting the rest of them in prison. We have all these refugees. I mean happy days are here again. The Messiah is here. We're saved. We're on God's side now. And now they're refugees to Samaria and to Syria and to Cyprus. And then you have Herod murdering James. What would they have thought if Jesus hadn't warned them? This is going to happen. And he says, when they put you out of the synagogues, that or rather in verse 2, that they will put you out of the synagogues. In other words, you're going to be declared heretics. And to be put out of the synagogue means you not only lose your church, but you lose your family, you lose your job, you lose your home, you're an outcast. They're going to hate you the way they hate a registered child molester. And he says there's a time coming when everyone who kills you, kills you, thinks that he is offering service to God. Service. This isn't the usual word that we expect for service. The uh, Alcaneo, uh, which is to serve like a, a waiter Now this is latreo this is worship service this is liturgy this is when people who kill there's a time coming soon when those who kill you will think they're actually worshiping God in the act of killing you the way they worship God when they take a lamb or a, a kid goat to the temple and give it to the priest and the priest slits its throat and pours out its blood when they kill you and pour out your blood they're going to be thinking they're doing the same thing the priest does in the temple that's hideous so when that happens if they haven't been told this coming they'd be tempted to think why didn't you warn us And why do they hate us like this? And so what Jesus is doing is he said, I'm telling you now. Expect it. It's coming. I'm telling you now so you'll be kept from stumbling. It, we know what that means. It Keep you from being tripped up. Uh, used to hunt a lot in the woods and every now and then you'd be chasing the dogs and there would be this old hog wire fence that had rusted away except for the bottom strand. And you're running along and you trip over that bottom strand. Why? Because you didn't expect it. You didn't see it coming. He says, I want to make sure you expect this. I want you to see it when it's coming. And then in verse 4, he repeats that, what he said in verse 2. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour, that is those who hate you, those who persecute you. When their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Hmm. I'm telling you now so that when it happens, you may remember I told you it would happen. And understand. If what I've predicted about the world hating you is true. If what I predicted about the world hating you comes to pass, what I've promised you will also come to pass. What I've promised you will also be true. That by your trusting me, I give you eternal life. And you will never perish. And no one will ever be able to snatch you out of my hand. That I will come again for you. I will take you to my father's house. That you may be there with me and him forever. And he says, I've waited to warn you until now because I was with you. Their hatred was directed at me. But after I leave, their hatred will turn on you. And then in verse 3 he says, These things they will do because they did not know the Father or me. Hmm. He's reiterating chapter 15 verse 21 to answer the question, Why do they hate us? In chapter 15 verse 21 he says these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Here he says these things they will do because they did not know the father or me saying the same thing. They suppose they know the living God but they don't know him at all. They suppose they're worshiping the living God but they're not worshiping at all. Now they knew some things about him but they don't know him. They didn't even recognize him when he came to them and stood there face to face breathing the same air they're breathing and teaching them how to be saved. How to have eternal life. They didn't know the Father and they don't know me. They don't recognize their God and they still don't recognizing. Like Romans 1.18 says, they're still suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And tomorrow, they're going to demonstrate that. Now, these are the ones who go to the temple and they offer up their sacrifices and they pray their prayers and they give their money. But when the God they think they're worshiping is standing right there, And you can reach out and touch him. You can smell him. And he tells them how to be saved from his own wrath. They're like the religious bigwigs who murdered Stephen. They cover their ears, they shout out loud, and they rush on him and they kill him. And tomorrow they're going to cover their ears, they're going to shout against him, they're going to take him outside the city. And they're going to kill him. And that's what's happening today. It's happening in Nigeria, Somalia, Afghanistan, India, Laos, and we go on and on and on. Citizens of those countries that Christ has chosen out of the world for himself. And they've received him as Lord and they're saved by faith in him. They're saved out of the darkness of Islam or Hinduism or animism. They go to their neighbors and they tell their neighbors how they can know God. How they can know God personally. How they can be reconciled to God and know it. Once for all, reconciled to God and know it. How that Jesus is the one who gives us eternal life. And what do their neighbors do? They go into a rage and they cover their ears and they shout out loud and they drive them out of the city and so many times they kill them for telling them that. But that's not the end of the story. Now remember the question we asked at the beginning, is that the end of the story? Now we're going to see what the end of the story is. The end of the story is simply this. Some who hate the Lord Jesus Christ today and hate us today... We'll be our brothers and sisters in Christ later. That's the end of the story. Saul of Tarsus helped murder Stephen. But on the road to Damascus, he was converted by sovereign free grace to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember, Saul had to be in the Sanhedrin when Stephen was being interrogated. And he heard what Stephen had to say. And then when Stephen was taken outside and was being stoned to death. And Stephen prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He, he couldn't get that out of his head. It kept coming back, what Stephen said and what Stephen prayed. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. We're killing him. And when it pleased the Lord, on that day, on the Damascus road. He revealed himself to Saul in a miraculous way. And Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church, the murderer, the Christian hater, the Jesus hater, became Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 6 verse 7. We're told that when the church was growing in Jerusalem, when all these signs and wonders were being done, when the gospel was being preached by the apostles for the first time to the Jews in Jerusalem, a great multitude of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests! I mean, these are the ringleaders of those who lynched the Lord Jesus Christ. These were the most bitter hateful enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ these are the Sadducees and a great multitude of the priests became obedient to the faith by sovereign free grace the end of the story is that the Lord God omnipotence is converting many of those who hate the Lord Jesus Christ today who hate us today he is converting them to faith In the very Lord Jesus they hated. He's doing it even today. Now he's not doing it right here in our presence now. But he's doing it around the world. The examples is very plain. There are those like Rosaria Butterfield. Militant. Militant. God hating lesbian. She writes this manifesto. On. On. Uh, same-sex unions for the Syracuse University and it's printed in the paper and a man in a Reformed Presbyterian church reads it gets all upset runs into his pastor and says what are we going to do about this and his pastor says I think I'll invite her out to lunch so he and his wife invited Rosaria Butterfield out to lunch and she was an English professor at Syracuse and she was talking about how the Bible uh, was so was a hate book and this sort of thing. And he said, "Have you ever read it?" And she said, "Well, no." He says, "The most popular piece of literature in the English language, and you've not read it." And she realized she was hooked. She had to read it. So she started reading it, and this pastor and his wife continued to have lunches with Rosaria I don't know what they talked about I haven't read her book yet I need to do that but they never invited her to church not once here's the man who understands sovereign grace (laughs) and so one day she woke up one Sunday morning and said well I'll get off the hook I'll go to their church and they'll kick me out And so she goes in her skinny jeans and her her spiked heels and her crew cut into the church. And they welcome her. And she hears the gospel. And so she comes back. And comes back. And keeps reading the Bible. And I remember one, one item from her testimony is that they were having a party at her and her friend's apartment or house, I don't know if it's an apartment or house, doesn't matter and it's for all, the, all homosexuals and this homosexual man went into the bedroom to get something and saw her Bible next to her bed and he says are you reading this? and she said yes he said we'll lose you if you keep reading this He may not be a son of a prophet, but he was a prophet. And under the preaching of the Word of God and reading the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ converted Rosaria Butterfield into a child of God by faith in him. And she is now the wife of a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, testifying to the grace of God. And then... Not anywhere nearly as dramatic as as, uh, Rosaria Butterfield. There's just a low-down, common garden-variety sinner like me that hated Christians and resented God. And yet, by free sovereign grace, when it pleased him, he converted me. Because in my arrogance, I went to a church to prove that he was wrong. And that was a big mistake for Satan to let me do that. Because over the weeks that I kept, I could not stop coming back. I figured I'd go once, I'd prove that all this is wrong, and I'd be done with it. But I heard the word, and the word rang, and the word was patently true. And I kept coming back Sunday after Sunday until one day in the sermon the light went on. And I said so that's why you're answering my prayers. Jesus died for my sins. Now see I can understand him dying for your sins because you had a little handful of sins. You had small sins. You were unkind to your brother or you were disrespectful to your mother but I was an enemy of God. I was an enemy of the Lord Jesus. I despised Christians. And yet he died for my sins. And he made me new. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Stand up with me please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.